Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. Basically, they found me and they built a case around me. Not facts, but they built their evidence to make it look like me, like the the hair analysis, which turned out to be a real bad thing to use to convict somebody. Uh, they've already proven that the most they could have done was say that I was a white male with blonde hair. Extent. That was 100,000 people in Bavar County alone. And, you know, if you watch Moxley's trial in the first trial, he manipulated evidence. Going from a possibility to a fact, you know, a known fact, and he just twisted the evidence. Uh, Dean Moxley was a, you know, there are several different classes of persons. He was a personal sort of guy. He went to some nice schools. He was very knowledgeable. You know, there are people who are knowledgeable because of perspiration, other by inspiration. He was a very hard working guy, but he was not anywhere near as gifted a mind as he was attributed to because he worked very, very hard. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, where we have spent the last few months taking apart and analyzing the convictions of William Dillon, Wilton Dedge, Juan Ramos, and to an extent, Gary Bennett and Gerald Stano. Two were exonerated by DNA evidence. One was acquitted on retrial. One remains in prison after 33 years, and one was put to death in the electric chair. How were the five men connected? Well, their prosecutions bore some striking similarities. For one, the state brought in lying dog handler John Preston and his preposterous claims about his dog's ability to link suspects to crimes. The state also brought in murderers and rapists like Clarence Zaki and Roger Dale Chapman to testify that the defendants had confessed to them while in jail. The other common denominator, of course, was prosecutor Dean Moxley. He personally prosecuted Dedge once, Ramos, Bennett, and Stano, and was the supervising prosecutor in the Dillon case. His handwritten notes are in the Dillon case file. So if something was rotten in these cases, it makes sense to take a closer look at the person prosecuting them. So what do we know about Dean Moxley? Moxley was born on April 2nd, 1944, in Coral Gables, Florida. He graduated from Duke University in 1966 and earned his law degree there three years later. He served as a judge advocate for the U.S. Air Force between 1970 and 1974 when he went to work in Brevard County as an assistant state attorney. It was there that he rose through the ranks to become the chief prosecutor in the early 1980s. He rode a wave of high-profile prosecutions like Ramos, Bennett, Dedge, and Stano to a seat on the bench as a circuit judge. He raised a family in Brevard County and became involved in youth soccer, 
later serving as an assistant coach for the Astronaut High School girls' junior varsity soccer team. One of his players on that team lost her brother, 18-year-old Steve Linthicum, to a murder back in 1984. Moxley prosecuted the case and used John Preston, even though the dog handler was already under investigation and Moxley had been warned that he was a fraud. But in that case, the dog evidence was thrown out and the suspect, James Kenneth Elman, walked free. Elman, who had a history of sexual assault, was eventually arrested again in Jacksonville for rape and then years later would be convicted of murder after DNA tied him to the rape and murder of an Arcadia woman. He is now serving a life sentence. Linthicum's sister, Amber O'Neill, told me that Moxley would never speak to her about her brother, even though she asked numerous times. She told me, quote, If I brought up the topic, he would sigh and walk away. I can't help but wonder if his formula for winning trials had backfired, and if the person who had brutally murdered my brother is still out there somewhere. Moxley retired from the bench on January 5th, 2015, but occasionally handles cases as a senior judge. That's important. He still hears cases. And some of the lawyers I've interviewed as part of the series still have cases that come before him. If you remember from the first season of Murder on the Space Coast, it was as a sitting judge in 2009 that Moxley wrote a multi-page letter to Special Prosecutor Jeff Ashton urging him not to allow Gary Bennett the DNA testing he was seeking. I'm not the only one who thought that was odd. Remember, we heard from Gary's attorney in Season 1, Paul Castellaro of Centurion Ministries, who called it weird. Well, here's what criminal defense attorney and former prosecutor Sam Bardwell had to say about the matter. Let me just tell you, that act would result in him being being uh, shot, knocked off the bench. I mean, he, that letter is so inappropriate that no judge should ever interject themselves on an ad hoc basis into any judicial controversy. And that's, that, that, that's outrageous. Do you know that? That's outrageous. According to the Florida Supreme Court's Code of Judicial Conduct, Canon 2, a judge shall avoid impropriety and the appearance of impropriety in all of the judge's activities. It goes on to say, a judge shall not allow family, social, political, or other relationships to influence the judge's judicial conduct or judgment. When I asked Bennett's attorney about this last year, he said it was kind of a gray area because Moxley was the man who prosecuted the case. No one ever filed a complaint with the Judicial Qualifications Commission about Moxley's letter. So, Moxley as a prosecutor, well, we know he was deemed very successful. He rose through the ranks. Of course, we also know he helped send at least two innocent men to prison, William Dillon and Wilton Dedge, probably a third, going by the jury's conclusions in Juan Ramos's retrial, when they acquitted him of murder and freedom after about two hours. Maybe a fourth with Gary Bennett? Exonerations and retrial where someone is found not guilty are not that common. But more on that in a minute. Now, Moxley as a judge? What's ironic is that Moxley has earned the reputation of being soft on crime. 
And I thought that he he was making amends because I heard him making, you know, being reluctant and, you know, about the kind of evidence that he was famous for. But now as far as being a great judge, he, he changed his tune when it came to jailhouse confessions. And he, you know, I think he was atoning for his sins. Was he a great judge? He was a very studious judge who had lots of experience in the courtroom. I've mentioned this a few times in earlier episodes, but in case you're wondering why we are not quoting Moxley, well, it's because he's refused every interview request I've ever made, including way back in 2007 about the William Dillon case. Yes, I have tried again numerous times, including last season, and of course, I've continued to try during season two. The answer, relayed always through a court spokeswoman, is no. The retired judge has made some decisions in recent years that have ended tragically. In 2012, he refused to listen to all the evidence and testimony that was being presented during an injunction hearing between neighbors who had been feuding. A few days later, William Woodward snapped and shot his neighbors to death after they could be heard on video harassing him, threatening him, and cursing at his family late into the night. Woodward's attorney, Robert Berry, had this to say in court. It's to the point where my clients started bringing some police officers. They had subpoenaed four police officers to come testify for them. <clears throat> and had some other people that were relevant witnesses. And, and Judge Moxley just brings in the four officers and says to both sides. And, and he's trying to do, he's in his mind decided there aren't any basis for any of these objections. Hadn't heard all the cases, but had just sort of made that determination and said, words to the effect that, you know, the, these officers have a lot to do. They're busy people. We're not like Orlando, I think he said. We don't have, you know, the, the police manpower to spare for things like this. Y'all need to just stop, just stop doing this stuff. Leave each other alone. Act like you're going to church. Another one of his own words. Just stop it. And again, a few days later, William Woodward shot and killed two of his neighbors and injured a third. Woodward remains in the county jail awaiting trial. Just a few years earlier, Moxley came under fire for denying an injunction, an order of protection in 2010, for a 23-year-old woman who said she was being stalked by a 61-year-old admirer. She even presented the judge with 70 pages of harassing emails. Moxley said no. A few days later, that 61-year-old, Roger Troy, shot and killed Alyssa Blanton. In 2003, the judge came under fire for releasing Derek Henderson on a signature, even though he was due to go to prison for six years. Henderson ran. But let's be honest, it's his work as a prosecutor that really should be getting scrutinized. Again, here is attorney Sam Bardwell. His whole body of, of work as a prosecutor has been impugned. And let me tell you, no amount of judging is going to compensate for that. In fact, you know, my general view is that he should never have been on the bench. We have a really rotten system here and that it takes personal integrity. And once you lose your personal integrity, you know, 
You got more power. No, you got power without principles. Others were a little more guarded in their assessments. Here is Dedge attorney Mark Horowitz. Wilton Dedge, remember, was convicted and served 22 years in prison before being exonerated by DNA evidence. And then as to Dean Moxley, I mean, I, I came to the conclusion after seeing what Preston had done for Brevard County that, you know, they, whether they believed him and thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread or whether they didn't care whether he could really do what he said, I don't know. I can't get into the head of those prosecutors who were using them, using him. Public defender J.R. Russo said that Moxley was as comfortable using John Preston as he was in cutting deals with jailhouse snitches. Prosecutors at the time were Dean Moxley, who was quite fond of dealing with not only the dog in many, many cases, but in feeling comfortable with um, jailhouse um, testimony. Remember, a judge scolded prosecutors for going to the county jail and seeking out informants. We know absolutely that Clarence Zaki lied in the Wilton Dedge case and that Roger Dale Chapman lied against William Dillon. The notion that an inmate awaiting trial or going back on an appeal and insisting they were innocent would ever confess to a stranger in jail is really kind of mind-boggling. One lawyer, though, defended Moxley. Preston, he said, was a con artist, and Moxley fell victim, too. Here is attorney Greg Eisenmenger. As I said, uh, <clears throat> I had a number of cases uh, with uh, Judge Moxley before he went to the bench. I've had any number of trials uh, before him, uh, you know, and he's had a very distinguished career. And I've always found him uh, to be a straight shooter uh, and uh, a man of integrity. But uh, I would say that he had a blind spot when it came uh, to Preston. I think uh, Preston had convinced him. Uh, the example that I always use when I talk with people about this, I think, Preston is the typical con man, uh, and what he was very good at doing is ferreting out information uh, and reading people as he fed them back information, <clears throat> kind of like uh, the, the mentalist acts uh, that you see, uh, you know, the magic acts, uh, where the person, uh, you know, asks a series of questions, and he's already been fed information, you know, before the, the show. The only problem with Eisenmenger's theory, well, actually, there are two problems. The first was brought up by assistant public defender Mike Perolo last season when he said something to the effect that Moxley is a pretty smart guy, and it's hard to believe he could be fooled so often. Actually, let's just let him tell you. Dean Moxley at the time was pretty much leading up all the homicides at the state attorney's office. So if it was a homicide, the case came to him. And he's pretty much the, the felony uh, supervisor. And what we discovered, at least in our case, working on Bill Dillon's case, was that John Preston was brought into these cases by Moxley. Um, and, and I give, you know, Moxley is a judge for a long time. Um, he's a senior judge, which means he's retired, but he comes back and, and works on cases. He conducts trials. And I actually have a case with them currently. It's a, it's a juvenile life without parole resentencing case. What, what is concerning is that you know, Judge Moxley is a very smart man. And to be in the position that he was you know, 30 years ago, um, 
I don't think a guy that smart gets fooled by a guy like John Preston. Um, and, and that, and I can be completely wrong. And you know, and, and Moxley could say, you know what, he 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 duped me too. Um, I, I have all, the only thing I know is that he was brought in. Preston was brought in by him. The second problem involves a sworn affidavit I happen to have. It comes from a man by the name of Earl Petty Jr. A word about Petty. This is a guy who served in the U.S. Army for 21 years and in Special Forces for 17. After the Army, he would serve as the Chief of Police in Sebastian and Melbourne Village. He also was a detective for the city of Melbourne and even ran the county jail for the sheriff's office for a while. He was called back to active duty in 1988 where he trained Mujahideen fighters in Afghanistan in their efforts to combat Soviet troops. He was later called again to action in Bosnia. In other words, this guy was the real deal. He passed away in 2015. But in 2008, he signed an affidavit recalling an interaction from 1982 with none other than John Preston. The crux of the seven-page document is that Petty was assigned a rape case. The rapist had apparently left behind a piece of clothing and his flashlight. Petty had heard of Preston and heard that his dog was able to accomplish incredible things. He wanted Preston to tell him if the scent on the clothing and flashlight could be tied to the victim's robe. Here's a little bit of what Petty says. Quote, When I first made contact with Mr. Preston, he asked to turn my case file over to him so he could review it prior to working his dog. I refused to do so. He then asked me verbal questions about the case that would aid him in his task. Again, I refused. He went on to say that Preston became very angry and his dog was unable to do anything during the scent detection lineup. Why all this is so important is because in the affidavit, Petty says he told Prosecutor Moxley about his concerns and what had happened. Here are his words. Quote, I told then-assistant state attorney John Dean Moxley of my concerns about Mr. Preston. I told him several times that I thought Mr. Preston and his dog were bogus. Mr. Moxley, who is now a circuit judge, listened and was cordial during these conversations. I was not the only one ringing the bell. There were others in the law enforcement community who were voicing their concerns about Mr. Preston and how he was being used. End quote. That was 1982. We know that Moxley would later use Preston during the 1983 trial of Juan Ramos and the 1984 trial of Gary Bennett. Preston was also used in the second trial against Wilton Dedge in 1984. One year later, Moxley became a judge. So maybe Moxley had been duped initially, but there was doubt being raised, strong doubt and it had been expressed to Moxley directly. Here I am chatting about this very thing with former FDLE profiler Tom Davis, who also worked during this time as an investigator for the state attorney's office. Uh, Earl Petty went to, went to Dean Moxley and Correct. said, uh, you know, I'm not gonna work with this guy because he's asking me for all the case information and that's not how dog tracking should work. Yes. How troubling is that to you? It very much because when you showed me, I, I knew there was a lot of problems, but uh, your file that you recovered with Earl Petty's statement 
Earl Petty's words would be gold to me, and it's unimaginable that that you wouldn't take that into consideration. I mean, you're already, I think, being laughed at because you use this dog that has progressively gotten worse and worse. And to me, the epitome, because I knew Earl Petty, is an honorable guy that under no circumstances would he uh, buy. I just don't believe it. Uh, I mean, that's that's shocking to me. It's even more shocking that, that if I accepted, and I certainly can't because Mr. Moxley is, is a brilliant person, a very intelligent person, uh, and said, you know what, he, he just didn't know better. I mean, even if I, which would be a ridiculous uh, assumption on my part, but if I did accept that, but given... I'd heard about Petty's refusal. I'd never seen his sworn affidavit. Uh, I'm like, unbelievable. Right. Unbelievable. Right. I, I, I just, I don't understand it, John. I really, why? Would, I wouldn't jeopardize my career. Right. I don't understand it. So just as prosecutor Dean Moxley would build cases and prosecute them, we've kind of laid out our own case here over months of reporting. Dean Moxley used dog handler John Preston to help convict two innocent men, Wilton Dedge and William Dillon, where Moxley was the supervising attorney. And to help convict Juan Ramos, who was later freed on retrial after a jury acquitted him, Moxley used Preston against many others as well, including two men who may be innocent or who, at the very least, had very dubious evidence presented against them. They are Gary Bennett and Gerald Stano. Stano was executed, and while he'd pleaded guilty and had been sentenced to life in prison for murdering several other women, he was executed for a killing that happened in Brevard County, a murder that some say he did not commit. We know it was Moxley who initiated the investigation into Stano after detectives with the sheriff's office did not respond to correspondence from a detective in Daytona Beach who was wondering if there had been any unsolved homicides that could be linked to Stano during a specific time frame. And Gary Bennett? Well, he remains in prison, insisting on his innocence. Preston, we know, lied. His dogs didn't track the scent of a suspect to the crime. It was all made up, a massive con job. Remember, Arizona's Supreme Court called him a charlatan, a liar, and a fraud, and overturned cases he worked on. We also know that Moxley used jailhouse informants against all these men. We know that these informants received something for their testimony, such as reduced charges or time lopped off of their prison sentences. We know that a judge at the time complained about the use of jailhouse informants, and that lawyers have said prosecutors walked up and down the jailhouse halls asking who wanted a deal. We heard them tell us that on the record. We also know that there was one particular jailhouse informant whom Moxley relied on more than once. One guy who, well, as one of our sources put it, heard more confessions than a Catholic priest. That was Clarence Zaki, a man who murdered the brother of an assistant state attorney, a man who sold drugs, who raped little girls. Zaki's 180-year prison sentence evaporated and became 18. We know that Zaki even had Moxley's home phone number. 
When Wilton Dedge was granted a new trial and Preston's dog testimony had been thrown into doubt, it was Zaki who suddenly appeared in a jail van with Dedge and testified that Dedge confessed to him. When Gerald Stana was being prosecuted for a murder in Brevard and Preston claimed to have found a scent linking him after eight years, it was Zaki who mysteriously found himself near Stano and said Stano confessed. Good thing, because Moxley didn't attempt to introduce Preston to the court. Tracking a scent after eight years might have been a hard sell after all. In the Wilton Dedge trial, Moxley told the jury that pubic hairs found at the scene of the crime belonged to Dedge even though there had been no evidence presented to support that. It was those pubic hairs later that would help exonerate Dedge, along with a semen sample, when DNA testing got better. We know that Moxley told the jury in the Bennett trial that John Preston's dog-tracking evidence was the scientific equivalent of a fingerprint on a murder weapon. We know that Moxley used Preston even after homicide detective Earl Petty told him that Preston was a fraud. He used Preston, even after a Preston case was overturned in federal court in Ohio. He used Preston, even after courts in New York were investigating Preston's claims and had raised serious doubts about him. He used Preston, even after respected attorneys like Sam Bardwell, J.R. Russo, and Norman Wolfinger called Preston's claims outrageous. We know that as a judge, he tried intervening in Gary Bennett's attempts to have DNA testing done. As I said earlier, I've asked Moxley for an interview. I've asked him numerous times. He refuses. So, what are we to make of this record? Well, here's what Michelle Martin has to say. Remember, she was the adopted daughter and rape victim of Clarence Zaki. Zaki, who testified against Dedge and Stano, saying that both had confessed to him. Dedge was exonerated, and Stano was executed. And so how does that make you feel? Extremely angry. Well, Gerald Stano lost his life because an attorney didn't want to lose a case. Wilton Dedge, he spent 22 years in prison. Yes, he's out now. He was freed. And they gave him money and all that fun stuff, but that man is always going to be considered a rapist. He lost his life because an attorney didn't want to lose a case. It's all, it's not justice anymore. It's politics. It's if I want to raise, I can't lose. If I want to move up, I've got to have a winning record. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to do it. Dean Moxley is retired but he still hears cases on occasion. Wilton Dedge spent 22 years in prison before DNA proved he wasn't the rapist. William Dillon spent almost 28 years in prison before DNA proved he wasn't the murderer. Juan Ramos lost seven years of his life in prison before a retrial ended with a not guilty verdict. Gerald Stano was executed, and Gary Bennett is now in his 34th year in prison, hoping justice can still somehow find him. Moxley put them all there. Moxley has faced no repercussions. He hasn't even said I'm sorry to the men proven innocent. Here is Gary Bennett's sister, Karen. Dean Moxley, I, 
I would just ask him to, you know, search his heart and come clean about the whole thing. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast, will those responsible ever face justice? You can request an opinion. I mean, it's frustrating uh, uh, when you see uh, appellate courts uh, actually uh, uphold something based on a fact that, that the record doesn't support. So there are these factors that just make you sick. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridastay.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, Brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Mm-hmm.